0: Hey, it's John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and it's The Entrepreneurial You, the show for dedicated and passionate Caribbean entrepreneurs seeking daily inspiration, brought to you by author, speaker, and award-winning entrepreneur, Henneka Watkins porter You must be prepared to ignite. Hello, hello, hello to my amazing listeners of The Entrepreneurial You podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Henneka Watkins porter And today we are thrilled, very, very thrilled to have a former U.S. Navy nuclear power plant operator, Navy diver, and business growth expert with us today. But before we proceed, let's take a moment and pay the bills. We needed to raise capital, but our experience with local financial institutions was that they were cautious and slow to act and interest rates were far too high. We had real concerns about financing our business through outside equity investors and the possibility of interference. Could we get a fair valuation for our business? We had our own ideas about the business and its value. Should I go the traditional route of bank financing or should I try the Jamaica Stock Exchange? So we made a call and experienced transformation of our business through conversations. I'm John Mafood. CEO of Jamaican Teas, and we're listed on the Jamaica Stock Exchange. Give us a call today at 876 967 3271 to begin your transformation through conversation. We want to see your company listed on the Jamaica Stock Exchange. Welcome back to the Entrepreneurial You podcast. Hey, my amazing listeners, as I gave you a little preamble earlier. So today's guest is a former U.S. Navy nuclear plant operator on a submarine, and he sits on the boards of startup companies, runs a venture fund, supports nonprofit-supporting military vets, and spends most of his time helping CEOs and founders of growing companies automate, systemize, and scale to eight- and nine-figure valuations with over 20 years of technology, systems, operations, and marketing expertise, our guest today has advised over 1,000, yes, you heard me correctly, 1,000 companies invested tens of millions in advertising campaigns and helped uh, companies generate over 1 billion, with a B, U.S., in investment capital. Let's make welcome Jeff Barnes.
1: Thank you so much, Anika, for having me here. I appreciate that. Great intro, by the way.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. So let's talk about, let's get into a little icebreaker, right? Let's do a little icebreaker. Let's get right into it. Let's get right into it. Let's get right into it. I want to ask you, Jeff, what similarities do you see between your Navy background and tech background if you compare your time as a Navy diver to navigating
1: the tech industry? From a diver to navigating the tech industry? Okay, well, <laughs> so I would say that, um, you know, when, when you're in the Navy and you're going through dive school, it's a very rigorous process. It's, you know, five weeks long, and they put you through hell trying to make you quit. Essentially, they just want to find out if you have the grit and determination to make it through. Um, it is physically challenging, but more importantly, it's mentally challenging. And if you can't hold up to the stress and the strain, then you're not going to make it through. In fact, uh, I don't know what the exact attrition rate is, especially now with Navy divers. But when I was there, it was roughly 50% of the people that went in didn't graduate through the program. So when I think about that and, and how that shaped my mental toughness, I'd say that is the biggest corollary and correlation between being a Navy diver and navigating tech industry, startups, entrepreneurship in general, because if you don't have that determination, that grit going into it, that mental toughness and ability to weather the storms and and be faced with adversity on a regular basis and be knocked down and then have to pick yourself back up to get going again, you'll never make it. And so I think that's probably the biggest thing that I the biggest takeaway I had from all of that into the rest of my life is just being able to stick to it and get the job done.
0: Well, how the heck did you end up as a navy diver anyway? Let's talk a little <laughs> bit about that. <laughs>
1: I wanted to be one. Um, So when I was in high school, all I wanted to do was play baseball for the Dodgers. And unfortunately, due to an injury I sustained over and over again, uh, that ruined my baseball career. So I was not going to be a uh, a baseball player like I'd wanted to be my entire life. And so I was looking at other options. And I think I'd seen the movie Navy SEALs with Charlie Sheen about that time. I was like, oh, that looks super cool. I got to go check this out. Well, back then, they might still do it, but I doubt it. The Navy actually had, um, you could send in and request information from them, and they would send you a packet on how to prepare for what they called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition and SEAL School. And I looked through that. And so my junior and senior year of high school, I was essentially training because I wanted to go become a SEAL. Well, after I had surgery on my shoulder, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to pass the physical fitness test. Um, I just couldn't do the pull-ups. I couldn't do the push-ups. I you know, hadn't properly healed yet. So when I got into the Navy, I still wanted to do that because I didn't know what else I wanted to do with my life. I became a nuclear, um, we call ourselves nukes. We went through the nuclear power training program in South Carolina, went through all of that. But still in the back of my mind was like, hey, I still want to be like that that badass dude out there. They could be you know the Navy seal, but I knew it was still gonna be really hard for me to be a Navy seal. Well, dive school is maybe a rung or two below Navy seals, you know because the the seals obviously have to train you know extreme amounts and I'll never take anything away from them. they They do absolutely phenomenal amazing things that in, in fact, I think most of them are a little bit psychotic because of what they go through. Um, but you have to be to be able to survive that. But all Navy SEALs have to also become divers so that they can do their job. So dive school is sort of like a baby step maybe up into there. And so that was the only thing that I could really apply for given being a submariner, being a nuclear power plant operator. Um, it wasn't something that they would just let me go to SEAL school. That was not really in the in the cards at all. But dive divers are needed on submarines for safety swims, right? You're checking to make sure that, None of the there's no bombs on the outside of the boat. Every port, every harbor you enter into and exit out of, uh, you need to make sure that there's no fouling. In other words, gunk cleaning, clogging up all of the intakes on the boat. So you have to swim around the boat to, to figure that stuff out and not to mention um, safety and security when you're topside. So whenever a submarine comes into or goes out of port, you have to have people on top of the boat that are helping to get all the um, the moorings, the ropes tied on there and everything like that. And so a diver always has to be up there as a, as a safety swimmer. So if anybody falls over, the diver's in the water to go get them out, right? Essentially a lifeguard. And I saw all this as a, a really cool opportunity. And I'd been passed over about four or five times to go to dive school. And it wasn't until several people had failed out of dive school, I was like the last choice. They're like, okay, fine, we'll send you, I guess, because you're the only other option we have and we need you know, they need X number of divers on a boat, on a boat before you go on deployment. So they sent me, I think that was in April of 2005. And I got a chance to go through and, and passed it and did a great job. Um, not to say it wasn't difficult at all. It, it absolutely was difficult, but made it through that and had a great time. And so got a chance to be a diver and have gone scuba diving a number of times recreationally as well.
0: So you kind of barely made it into diving, right? And you and you eventually made it. So uh Talk about that transition from that into business and you know, um, tech and all of that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So when you're when you're running a, a power plant on a submarine and you're living on a submarine, that's a very unique lifestyle, and most people couldn't <laughs> Tell possibly relate it. to it, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's no windows, there's no doors. You know, you're not like you're not like you're seeing the fish swimming by or anything like that. Um, you're out there and you're spending weeks on end doing what we call three knots to nowhere which essentially means, hey, you're sitting there and staring at the gauges and making sure everything's operating properly and nothing changes, right? You hope nothing changes. If something changes when you're going what we call steady state, then something bad happens. We don't really like that. So when I left the, the military, obviously I had the military discipline. I had this background. But the civilian world doesn't understand what it is you do in the military for the most part, right? Unless you were a vet and went through it and then you're the person hiring somebody, most hiring managers, most companies have no clue what you've gone through. And so it's very difficult to take that um, that experience, expertise, training, schooling, all of that, and apply it into the civilian world. Well, I got really lucky in that one of my friends had gotten out about a year before I did and got this incredible job with a company and said, hey, you should apply for this job because you know it leverages your expertise. You get a chance to work from home. You have a car. You get to travel all over the place. And it's really, really easy. You should definitely do this. Um, and I'd never even heard of it. It's called being a boiler inspector. Like, sure, I'll check it. I didn't even know what a boiler was. Well, it turns out a boiler is just a steam generator, but it uses fire or electricity essentially. Um, <clears throat> so that job was actually incredibly easy for me. And what I loved the most about it was the autonomy. I went from sleeping with all of, you know, in, in the same area as all of my employees, sleeping on the boat with all the other sailors, to eventually getting to, Work from home and never have to see any of my 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 coworkers, my peers. I would see my boss early on, maybe once a month. Right by the end of my twelve-year stint with that company, I was seeing my boss once a year, um, and I'd gone up to you know two levels below the CEO at that point. And yeah, it was just a, a really incredible experience. But for me, it was it wasn't super challenging to make that transition, um, mostly because. I really embraced the opportunity to have my own personal autonomy and freedom and apply my skill sets into something that I was pretty good at.
0: Interesting. So let's talk about your extensive experience now in technology, operations, marketing, and all of that jazz. What are some of those fundamental principles that you find that are uh, universally applicable in helping businesses scale to eight and nine figure valuations, because no, that seemed to be a sweet spot.
1: Yeah, that's a. It, it's a really difficult thing for a lot of people to grasp, but if the military's taught me anything, if corporate America's taught me anything, not to mention all the schooling and training I'd gone through, um, it is that having the right people on your team and around you is probably the most important thing for any success of any company of any size. If you don't have the right people, You will not succeed. And let's just start with a really early stage small company. The the person who founds the company, who starts the company, has a lot of specialized knowledge. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have started the company in the first place. But that specialized knowledge, if anyone's read Michael Gerber and the e-myth, they understand that the specialized knowledge does not translate into business acumen. So we use somebody who is a, a software developer. Maybe they are incredible at developing software. And they've been doing this since they were a kid. They love it. They have a lot of fun doing it and they make incredible applications. Well, that's great. But then you have to sell the software or whatever you create in order to make money, which is how you run a business. So there is a need for salesmanship. And to sell something, you need a list of people or prospects to sell it to. That's marketing, right? We need to get the people in the door that we can sell to. So those three components, right, having an incredible product to offer, having people to offer it to, and then having the ability to close them on that offer is vitally important at the early stage. And most entrepreneurs are terrible at one, if not two of those three, right? Most entrepreneurs are generally very, very good at one. Some people will be great at sales. They love talking to people. They love closing the deal. They love getting somebody to buy a product. But that doesn't mean that they're great at building the product. Other people are great at building a product, but they're terrible at the salesmanship because they, they're like me. They go, well, it's a great product. It does all these amazing things. Why don't you want it? Right? And they can't wrap their head around that. And then, of course, on the back end is the service delivery or the operations. And yeah, as you scale and grow, all of a sudden there gets to be too much work for even one person or a small team to do. So you need to start hiring people. Well, if you're going to hire people, you need to have the ability to know how to hire the right people and not everybody gets it right. You know, most people actually get it wrong uh, several times until they figure out what is needed. And so figuring out your culture and how you guys are going to work together, what your core values are, what your vision, your mission are, so that you attract the right people is really important. And then as you scale a company, the acumen and the ability of the individuals in those seats will change, right? So somebody running a million dollar a year business If you have, say for example, a a CMO at that level, they're not really a CMO. They're more like somebody who understands marketing. When you get to $10 million, the person who understands marketing at that level is different than the person who understands marketing at a million dollar a year level. The person who understands marketing at $10 million per year level is very different than the person who understands at a hundred million and that's very different than a billion dollars a year, right? The principle of surrounding yourself with the right people never changes. But the roles, the responsibilities, the expertise and experience of the people on those in those roles will change over time. And so when you're scaling up your company, you as the CEO have to identify and understand who those people are, what seats they should be on, what responsibilities they should have. And are they the right people? And are you the right person? Right. A lot of CEOs that were founders are not great CEOs. They don't like managing people. They don't like managing the day to day and making sure the business is growing. They like doing one really small thing inside the business. And that's what the business was built around. We call it that their, their zone of genius. But that doesn't mean they're going to be a great CEO. So you need to figure out what the zone of genius is for you, as well as your team around you, and then how that changes every stage of the business.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, Jeff, so what lessons have you taken from the Navy that has enabled you to be this successful?
1: Yeah, well, just following on that, you know, one of the things I like to tell people is that the the captain of a submarine doesn't drive the boat, right? The captain of the submarine is making sure that his team, everybody below him and around him, is doing a great job and doing what they need to do. And he's holding people accountable, right? So in, in the military, you have your department heads, and those department heads are responsible for everything in that department and they're the ones who get in trouble if the underlings fail and it's the same thing in business right the ceo is not generally the one doing the sales the ceo is not writing the emails the ceo is not writing the blogs the ceo is not doing most of the things in the business but what is the ceo supposed to do the ceo is supposed to lead the ceo is supposed to make sure that his or her department heads understand what their jobs are and setting vision, and setting goals, and setting objectives, and figuring out what those key results are, and all those metrics that they need to meet. And then he's holding them accountable, right? And if people can't be held accountable along the way to meet or achieve or even exceed those goals, then the CEO's job or the the executive department's job is to identify those, those gaps and fix them in some way. And that becomes leadership. So the biggest levels in business a ceo is a leader not a manager in the very beginning you have to be a manager but at some point you have to shift into that leadership role that's a very very difficult transition for a lot of people to make that was something that i learned very early on in the navy um when you're a nub we call non-useful body you you clean everything right we had a saying if you have time to lean you have time to clean you get tired of cleaning like you're just cleaning every single day of your career it's really really annoying But eventually you get to the point where you're the the mechanic turning the wrenches and then you're fixing the valves and then eventually you're fixing the bigger problems. And then I got to a point where I was writing the procedures to fix the problems. Then I got to the point where I was the quality assurance inspector, making sure that everything was done properly. And then you get a point to a point where you're in charge of everybody. When you're in charge of everybody, you don't have time to do the work anymore, but you have to make sure the work's still getting done. And that becomes leadership more so than management. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, interesting. So what, what can you tell us about working with those, you know, the numerous founders that you've worked with, you know, standout moments, what it is, what similarities that you find, because I mean, founders would be different based on, you know, their area of focus, but at the end of the day, I think that there are some similarities that you can, you know, share. What are some of those similarities and what has been your experience working with founders?
1: Yeah. Most people are not going to like what I have to say about this. Uh, They may not even agree,
0: but the most successful
1: founders (laughs) Are incredibly abrasive most people don't like them most people don't yeah. like working with them yeah. and the number one reason why and i've had to temper this in myself as well is because a founder an entrepreneur has massive goals which means they have massive expectations and most people are not ready for that level of expe- expectation to be placed upon them so Steve Jobs was notorious for this, right? Steve yeah. Jobs was the guy that would throw things across the room. If something wasn't working, he'd berate his employees in front of other people. And a lot of people would not like that, right? In our sort of touchy-feely society these days where we can't step on you know, anyone's feelings, a lot of people can't handle that. But a CEO, just like in the military, right? If you are on a mission and lives are at stake, and if something goes wrong, people die, you don't have room for error. And you don't have room to find out why somebody didn't want to do their job today. The job needs to be done, right? That's discipline. You have to do the job and their expectations to be upheld. The most successful entrepreneurs, CEOs that I've ever worked with are the ones who are setting huge expectations of their team. And then they will not let um, incompetence slide. They will not let people not achieving their goals or reaching their metrics slide. And they will be mean right? They're not always nice people to be around. And it's understandable because they have their expectations way up here. And if the team is achieving at this level, even though that might be okay for a lot of people, it's not good enough for the entrepreneur. And so the entrepreneurs who are successful, it doesn't mean they're jerks, right? They're not just a bunch of, you know, assholes for lack of a better term. Sorry for for, uh, (laughs) cussing, but that's, that's essentially the way it is, right? That's the way people see them. And it's just because they have that expectation. So, but that doesn't mean you can be a jerk and I need to make sure I'm really clear on this. You have these massive expectations. You may, you may scream, you may yell, you may even call people names sometimes. Not that we're saying that that's a good idea, but you also have to be able to uplift those people. You have to be able to lead by example. You have to be able to um, support their dreams, their hopes, motivate them in ways that are going to get them to do the job. Right. And again, again, I'm not saying that that one management or leadership style is better than another. Some people are very good at being very calm, cool, and collected and saying something to uh, a a subordinate, an underling that will hurt just as much as somebody yelling. Right. Um, Give you a really good example. When, when we're coaching people, we will set expectations with them and we will say, okay, so these are your expectations, what you need to get done. And then, The very next week they'll come back and something won't have gotten done and they'll give you all the reasons why it hasn't gotten done and so what you end up going and saying is well you know hanika you told me you were going to do this right well you didn't get it done did you why is that right and you don't let them give you any bs any excuses it's just like right to the point you did not do what was expected of you you are hurting people around you because you're not. And that can hurt people just as much as getting called a name, right? Because now they have to take that on. They have to realize, oh, man, I didn't do what I was expected to do. And so, again, leadership styles can vary. But again, a lot of those leaders and those successful founders and CEOs, a lot of people don't really like it because they are up in their face and holding them accountable.
0: Entrepreneurs, clearly, founders, we we talk about them, but clearly are of a different kind. It's like a totally different species. Outside of what you've shared with us, Jeff, um, how are entrepreneurs different from, I dare say, the regular person?
1: Oh, man, so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> right? So yeah. many ways. Um, you know, the, let me just say some of the things that I feel are, are the biggest differences. An entrepreneur, a founder, they cannot leave their work at work this this whole idea of work-life balance is a myth to them like what are you talking about work-life balance i go to bed with my ideas i wake up with my ideas this is my baby this is my life this is my thing and most people cannot relate that also comes back to their leadership management style and their expectations they live it they breathe it they think it they can't leave it alone somebody who is what we might call a civilian an employee mindset they love to be able to check out at the end of the day, go home and not think about it until the next work day. They love that. They love the ability to not even think about their job, their work, their responsibilities, anything. That's a major difference. It's the mindset altogether. And that dovetails into so many other things, right? An, an entrepreneur, a founder, a person who is highly motivated and highly successful will put in more hours without pay, then most people would put in, even if they were getting double time, right? And you know, I think it was, I don't know if it was Brian Tracy. Somebody said this a long time ago, and I love the quote: "An entrepreneur is the only one stupid enough to quit a full-paying job where they're getting paid for 40 hours a week, only to go work 80 hours a week to get almost no pay." Right? <laughs> the the entrepreneur is crazy like that, and it's because this this vision of what their life can be. Of what they can do for society, for communities, for other people is so much bigger than what they're dealing with in the moment that they can sustain. And I think that's a really, really big difference. So entrepreneurs are mostly different in the terms of their mindset and the way they think. And I and I coach a lot of people that if they don't have that tenacity, that grit, that determinism to or determination to go forward in spite of how much it sucks then they should not be an entrepreneur. I have a shirt. Um, it's you know a military saying, but it's embrace the suck. And it works for entrepreneurs too, because today might be terrible, but tomorrow will be less terrible if you keep at it. Right? And the, the SEALs have a saying, the only easy day was yesterday. Entrepreneurs, I think, can relate to that because today is a grind again. And even once you get to a modicum of success, entrepreneurs are always looking at that next big thing right uh we actually buy businesses from entrepreneurs who have just gotten bored with a business because they want to go into the next thing it's not even that they weren't successful they were just like hey i i did it now what's next right they just get bored with stuff so i'd say those are the biggest differences that i see between entrepreneurs and founders and most other people
0: so speaking of you know onto the next best thing what is it that is that's a, that one thing um it may not necessarily be even. Uh, business related, you know, entrepreneurship related, but what is that one thing that is required of an entrepreneur uh, who wants to scale, um, you know, to be able to sell a business, to deliver, where they can sell a business, get bored and sell a business?
1: Good question. So the first thing is desire, right? Um, most people don't even think about that. They they literally don't. They don't even think about it until they're so burned out. that like, I just want to be done with this. And That's not even at the early stage. That's the so burned out running the business that's successful, that's making money. Then they finally think about it. The problem with that is that that means it's been years of you maybe not doing things the way that would set up a business for success on an exit. Now, I'll give you an example. Uh, A company that we were working with and looking at acquiring was doing several million dollars a year in revenue. But. There were no standardized procedures. There's no systems in place to make sure the business would continue operating without him being there. That's a major issue. If you want to sell a business, you need to build the business as if it's going to run without you. And because most entrepreneurs have an ego and they have this pride thing that they have to contend with on a regular basis, they forget about that. right? And so they end up building a business that's all about them and you think about a bicycle wheel right you have the hub in the middle and you have all the spokes on the outside the entrepreneur that builds the business where they're the hub where everything connects back to them is the one that's never going to be able to sell or if they do they're going to get a lot lower valuation they're not going to be able to get as much money out of as they want on the other hand if you build a business where there is no hub or you're at least not the hub and there's an executive team and there's other people that can handle all the day-to-day operations, the sales, the marketing, the finances, the service delivery, the product manufacturing and logistics, all of that stuff. If it doesn't rely on you, you will have a much better time selling the business and achieve a much greater valuation. And to be honest, the only way that you can achieve a massive eight, nine-figure valuation is you're solving a really big problem for a really big market with a great product. Because once you've figured those things out, then sky's the limit of how big you can grow right you just have to make sure that you're profitable as you get there and the more profitable you are and the less it relies on you the more money you're going to make but to scale to those those really high levels you have to be solving a big enough problem for a big enough market that is going to attract enough people to buy your product you know for example if you're if you are teaching underwater basket weaving in antarctica you know you're going to have a really really small market right and No one's going to want to buy that business. Not only is it too cold down there, but, you know, what kind of underwater baskets are you going to weave down there? However, if you are solving the problem of, let's say, cancer, that's a big enough problem. And as a result, big enough market, there's an opportunity to scale. But if it's all dependent upon you, then you're the only person. You're still not going to scale. So you have to make it not about you, make it about the customers, find the problem, then solve the problem, then build the systems around that to give the the customers a great experience and then you'll have a scalable business.
0: Finally, Jeff, uh, what piece of advice can you share with our audience, you know, perhaps looking to achieve success, freedom, and some form of autonomy?
1: I would say really focus on what that freedom and success and autonomy looks like for you first, right? If you build a business, let's just say you build a multi, I mean, I, I knew a guy that built a business doing $10 million a year. And a lot of people would think that's amazing, but this guy was working 80 hours a week. He was so stressed out. And, you know, it was in the IT field and he made so much money. Everybody's like, what's wrong with you, dude? Like you're, you should have the best life. You have a nice house. You have a great family. And he'd come to these events. He's like, I'm, I'm stressed. I'm spending too much time. He's like on his phone in between breaks. He's trying to deal with all these problems. It, the reason why is because he was not clear on what his actual vision was. And, we all work through this together. We do these things called hot seats in our masterminds. And as he got clear on it, he goes, You know, I don't want to be in this business anymore. So within 90 days, he'd actually sold the business for a really nice multiple because he'd done all those other things. He didn't need to be the person who was in charge of everything. He was able to replace himself, which is his first big step, and then sold the business and then went on to live the life that he really wanted. And he made a lot of money doing it. But he wasn't clear, he was not very clear on the very beginning. So a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people that even lifestyle business owners, there's a very big difference between an entrepreneur and a, and somebody who wants to have a lifestyle business. A lifestyle business is I will work on it and it will support my lifestyle and I enjoy doing it. So it's not stressful. It's not a problem. You know, you could think attorneys, chiropractors, dentists, authors, coaches, consultants. They may not want to have a huge nine figure business, right? They may be okay with making million a year, but doing a lot of the work themselves, that's totally fine. But that's very different from an entrepreneur who wants to take a company to eight, nine figures and achieve an exit in three to five years or so and have something that's going to be massively impactful. So those people have very different mindsets about how they build that vision. The person who has a lifestyle business, they just need to be very clear on how many hours they're willing to work every week, how much money they want to make who they're gonna work with, who is their ideal client and customer, right? The other person needs to have the same idea, but they also need to be really clear on, okay, what do I want my life to look like in three, five years from now? Do I still wanna be doing this? Do I wanna set it up for an exit? Do I wanna set it up so somebody else can be the CEO and I can just be the chairman, passive investor? Like they need to figure that out. And if you don't figure that out in the very beginning, then you're gonna be building it backwards from the start. Oh,
0: interesting. Wow, well, such wealth of information that you have brought to us today, Jack, thank you so much. And um, share your content details with our audience. You know, just you fired them up and now they want to reach out to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. So best place to find me is angelinvestorsnetwork.com. Um, that's where we help entrepreneurs figure out if they're ready to raise capital and help them with the scalability of of, of things, as well as investors who want to get access to great deals. And then you can find me on LinkedIn, just Jeff P. Barnes, and I'm pretty easily found out there. So we're putting stuff out there regularly, and those are the best two places to go find me.
0: So that's angelinvestorsnetwork.com, investor, right? Correct. Yep. Okay. Awesome sauce. Awesome sauce. All right. Once again, Jeff, Jeff Barnes, I want to say thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today about business growth and scaling. Um, I have learned from you. I've been inspired by you. And so thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Anika. I really appreciate you having me here.
0: Awesome. And to my fantastic community, stay tuned for more inspiring episodes coming up, coming up, right? You know, that's what we do at the Entrepreneurial You Podcast. It's all about Allowing you to learn and to grow and to develop, even if you're not an entrepreneur, it is um, perfect for you because you learn about entrepreneurship, you know. And and so if you're working for somebody else, it, it, it provides you, equips you with what you need to be entrepreneurs, right? You don't necessarily have to be because we can't have everybody being entrepreneurs at all. Until next time, I am Henneka watkins Porter. I'm signing off now but I want you to stay inspired. I want you to refine your skills and nurture your entrepreneurial spirit. And remember, as I always say, that your journey to success is uniquely yours. Don't try to copy somebody else, be inspired by them, but don't be don't copy, right? For more information, for more content, visit pennyforwhatisporter.com and you'll find the links to the, today's episode as well as show notes and so on and so forth. Connect with me on social media, Henneka Watkins Porter. And finally, I ask that you affirm with me today, my lesson in skating and growth is a stepping stone toward my entrepreneurial vision, right? Whether or not you're gonna be working for somebody else, um, unleash an entrepreneurial spirit in you. Behave like an entrepreneur, you know, that grit that we have and that tenacity. Yeah man, <laughs> can't be too much. Take care of yourself, all right?